0: Thank you. So my name is Veronica C and I'm a compulsive, recovered compulsive overeater. And today's date is um, Saturday, October 28th, 2023. And welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Today our co-hosts are Dottie and Nancy J is doing Q&A. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts for private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until um, five minutes before the the Q&A session begins. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A session which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our intergroup. And World Service Organization. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat here. And I will now turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Hello, Harlan. Hi, Veronica. Thank you so much. And I missed you guys
1: last week. I was in San Diego, California, doing Big Book and. Um, I've been going to San Diego to do Big Book for a very long time. And I got, a, I got an opportunity last week to reacquaint with old friends in the San Diego area. And it was just lovely. But I got to tell you, I got to admit to you that I'm just basically at the end of my rope of traveling to do these. The traveling is just beating me down too much. So I'm going to curtail uh, 99% of it. uh, And I'm just going to do the Zoom and the phone things that kind of come my way. I know that there are some things on the horizon, like the birthday I'll be at, and I'll do big book there. And I'm going to be doing... um, the Scottsdale retreat next summer here in the Phoenix or here in Phoenix, but I don't have to travel for that. I can just drive to it and that's fine. But man, I'm getting old. The traveling is just beating me down. So um, yeah, that, that was, uh, that was uh, quite a weekend. I'm glad to be back here today with all of you. And you know, you hear me say this a lot. I'm going to say it today. Again, it is 72 here with shoe size humidity Uh, It is just absolutely stunning here in Arizona today. I hope it is as breathtaking where you are as it is here in the Sonoran Desert. It is just absolutely breathtaking today. And we say to each other all the time at this time of year, hey, this is why we live here. This is why we live here, because it certainly isn't for the summers. It's for this time of year through the middle to the end of next May. This is just going to be paradise. Um, We are in the Chapter 2, Employers, and when we get started, we're going to start on page 144 at the very bottom of the page where it says, On Your Employees' Return. Now, I would like you to consider the three concepts of things, the three basic subjects of this chapter. And this is the only chapter that is not written by Bill Wilson, other than The Doctor's Opinion. The Doctor's Opinion is written by Dr. Silkworth. And Bill Wilson wrote the rest of the book. Yes, even the chapter to wives was written by Bill Wilson. But this chapter was written by Hank Parkhurst. And Hank had been in big business. He had actually worked for Standard Oil of New Jersey. And he was the manager of a department where he managed 6,600 people. God, that's a lot of people. That's a big span of control. I own a company, and at one point we had 30 employees, and that was enough for me. Holy mackerel, I can't imagine supervising 6,600 people, but I'm sure he had underlings that did most of that for him. But anyway, this is the only chapter in the book that does not mention God. The word God is not mentioned in this chapter at all, and Hank Parkhurst was not really a very God-based person. He was more a person who wanted a psychological book. He wanted a book that would sort of analyze the reader and give the reader some insight as to uh, the pathology of why they were drinking in hopes that if we just found out the forensic analysis and we just could find out the answer to why we were drinking that we could stop and of course we know that that is just simply not true. Why am I a compulsive overreader? Well that's not really a very productive question because the answer to the question is because I am one and if you look in the back part of the book there's a there's a story in the back of the book and it's titled because i'm an alcoholic am i a compulsive overeater because of my mother no am i a compulsive overeater because of my dad no am i a compulsive overeater because the cubs sucked for so many years maybe no i'm kidding but the bottom line is is that i am a compulsive overeater because I am a compulsive overeater. That's the reason. And the question really isn't why. The question is, what am I going to do about it now? And this book answers such Questions specifically. And it says in chapter two, it is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. And in another part of the book, it says, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And a lot of people get disenchanted because they say, I'm abstinent, I've lost weight, I still have problems. Well, the book doesn't say problems, it says, Problem. But if I'm not eating, that to me is a start. There's nothing in my life that can't be made worse by some extra food. Extra food never improved one problem in my entire life. In 69 years of life, I could not point to an instance where eating extra food or raging or holding on to a resentment or holding on to a fear ever improved one thing in my life and eating less food and working the steps made everything better. Now, sometimes I know that Boy, if I eat this or if I eat that, man, it would feel great. Yeah, for about eight seconds, nine seconds. And then I've got the same problems, but now I'm in the food. So it doesn't make anything better for me. And I assume people like me like you. Now, there's three things. See, you think I forgot about that. There were three things that this chapter brings out beautifully. And I want to briefly talk about those things. And then we're going to continue on with the chapter with those things in mind. And the first thing that this chapter talks about is the loss of this disease and he illustrates beautifully the loss within industry that alcoholism costs the companies because their employees are alcoholic and i i wasn't i i own my own business but i don't have any employees except for me at this point um So I had a German shepherd, Emma, that worked for me, but she passed away. She doesn't work for me anymore. But the bottom line is, is that the loss that I would have to deal with, both as an employee and as an employer, a lot of times I'll talk about one, then I'll talk about the other. When I was a salesperson at companies and I sell on the phone and I could just sit there comatose because I had just been to the candy machine about five times in the last hour I could never have reached my sales goals because I was too full of food, too full of passing gas, too full of wanting to get out of the office. My mind was anywhere but on what I was supposed to be doing. My mind was on, oh, if only I could get out of here and go to McDonald's. Oh, if only I could get out of here and do this, or if only I could get out of here and do that then my life would be just perfect. My life would be fantastic if I could just eat this, this, and this. And I was thinking about anything except Making money. The last thing I wanted to do was pick up that phone, make more calls, get more rejection, but also get more sales. I just, I was a perfect guy of manana, manana, manana. And I pissed away too many todays in search of those sales that I was going to make tomorrow when everything was different. And of course, it never was. And if I had a fraction of the Money from the sales I could have generated. You know what Shakespeare said, guys? Shakespeare said, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words it might have been. So as the employee, I missed days as the employee, I would get sick. When I was really, really heavy, I would get strep throat and I would get viruses and I would get colds and flu and just so easily because I had no resistance. My body did not have any strength to fight these things off. So I would always, every spring, like February or March, every spring for years. And I got to tell you, it wasn't until the pandemic, the COVID, that it stopped. Finally, in the last, I shouldn't give myself any kinahoras here. Maybe I'll get one next spring. I hope not. But every spring, I would get an upper respiratory infection. And I would have to go on a CPAC, you know, the five days of antibiotics. But every spring, I would get one of these... um, uh upper respiratory infections and my voice is usually you know affected when i get sick my voice is one of the first things to go and when you have no voice it's very hard to sell on the phone but today my voice is better yesterday not so much yesterday i was worried i had to do 2 10 steps because i was scared i wasn't going to have a voice today for this presentation and i was i was plenty scared about that um so the loss as an employee, to me was great. As an employer, what I dealt with was addiction. And my kids, I call my salespeople, my kids, my kids would come to me and they, I want to raise, I'm not making enough money. And I would have to show them on paper the last 30 days, how many days they had missed Or how many days they spent standing in the parking lot, smoking weed, telling their friends, what a jerk me and Aaron Aaron and I ran the company, what a jerk me and Aaron are. They weren't here on the phone making money. So I'd say to them, if you would just come here every day and work, not stand out in the parking lot and smoke weed come in the building and actually work, you could make exponentially more money. And, you know, if they wanted something, I was there for them, but I can't just hand out money like prizes at the fair. You have to come in and earn it. And if they came in and they worked real hard, I would always find some renewals. I would always find some material to give them to help them make money. When they walked to me, I ran to them. But the loss was tremendous at our company. If we could have just captured some of the sales we would have got, If our employees would just have come to work every day, and I've bailed employees out of jail on a number of occasions, and I have bailed them out of uh, you name it, I have bailed them out of that stuff, and we've given loans and draws and all kinds of things to our employees. Most of the time, it worked okay for us, and some of the time, we got stuck. But sometimes in life, you do have to take a chance. But the loss as a student was even greater for me because when I think back on my academic career, going back all the way to primary grades, I was very uncomfortable in my skin. I was very uncomfortable in the seat. I was very, very uncomfortable in my clothes. And I was most uncomfortable because I couldn't eat in the classroom. And so I'd be sitting there and I'd be counting the seconds until I could get my hands on some lunch. When I was a young boy and I went to Chicago public schools, you couldn't eat in the building. You had to go home or you had to go to a restaurant or you had to do whatever. And then. 99% of the time I went home in, especially, well, I would say up to fifth grade or something like that. My mom would make me lunch and I only lived about a block from my grammar school. So we would go home for lunch and then we would come back and I'd be sitting in the class and the loss was enormous because I found it nearly impossible to pay attention to what the teacher was saying. Now, I know that the Chicago Public Schools, when I was a student there, were not exactly bastions of academic excellence, but I would swear they must have purchased some clocks that went backwards because for the love of God, I would sit there and it would be, say, uh, 10.20 would be morning recess. 10.20 to 10.40 was morning recess. Afternoon recess was 2 to 2.10. I would swear it'd be like 10.15 in the morning and I would look at the clock and then it would be 10.10 10 or 10.05. 10, I swear it must have been going backwards just to screw with me. I think they did that just to mess with me. No, I don't really think that. But the bottom line is my academic career was not spent paying attention. My academic career was giving an homage to paying attention while all the time I was thinking about food, fantasizing about food, fantasizing about what I was going to eat, how I was going to get my hands on some candy, how I was going to con my mom into giving me a quarter. Don't laugh. When I was a kid, a quarter was five candy bars. Five candy bars was a quarter. Because candy bars were a nickel, unless you were going Almond Joy, Mounds, or Chocolate Turtles, everything was a nickel except Mounds and Almond Joy and Turtles. They were a dime. But I could get away with not getting an Almond Joy. I don't know who buys Mounds bars. Certainly not I. But uh, I, if I'm going to spend the dime, I'm getting the almond. I, I don't, you know, call me crazy. I'm spending the dime. I'm getting the almond. And by the way, while we're on the subject, who buys m's without peanuts what could these people be thinking buying M&;Ms that don't have the peanuts inside what breed of what breed of person is this I don't understand that maybe before I die somebody can explain it to me if I'm going in for the nickel for M&;ms I'm getting the &;ms with the peanuts don't try to talk me into this other nourish kite because that ain't happening. So the law, I always, I tested well, I was always two, three grades ahead of where I was, uh, but my grades were very, very sketchy and marginal, very sketchy, very marginal. The loss that I had as a student, the loss that I had as an employee, the loss that I had as an employer did not Even compare with the totality of loss that I suffered because of this disease. This disease robbed me of the dreams that we all have of career of romance, of passion, of dating, of anything like that. The disease took every dream away from me. It took my dreams and set them on fire in front of me. And I watched my dreams burn and I watched the time pass and I watched the decades go by and dreams were unfulfilled. I will never be someone's first love. I will never be, uh, you know, I will never have that youthful passion, that, that unbridled youthful passion in my life. That passed me by forever. It's gone. That ship has sailed. I will never be in that situation where uh, you know, I was somebody's summer love or I was somebody's whatever. It's it's not going to happen. I'm 69 years old. And although I am very happy, I'm, I'm in a relationship with an outstanding person I, I, who I love with every fiber of my being. I will never have the youthful, you know, the stories of the youthful romances, the youthful passion that so many people get when they don't have this disease. It is just a sad state of affairs that that has passed me by. A lot of times when I watch movies, like I can't relate to the guy that gets the girl. I relate to the guy that didn't get the girl because Only four times in my life did I get the girl, but there were a million times in my life where I didn't get the girl. You know, I watch West Side Story. I feel sorry for Porcino who doesn't get Maria. I relate to that. I don't relate to the Tony guy who gets Maria. I relate to Porcino who tried to get her, but he couldn't get her. You know, so my, my heart, my eyes my brain i go to a different i go to a different kind of place because of my experiences in my life and that is a very sad state of affairs. The dreams that I dreamed of career, you know, and I'm paying the price today. I still have to work and I wish I didn't. I wish I could be a snowbird. Honestly, I wish I could live in Chicago with someone I adore. I wish I could live there during the summer and I could live here in Arizona during the winter, but I have to work and that makes it impossible for me to be able to do that. I have to really be here in Arizona, even at that time year, you know, end of May, June, July, August, half of September, where I would rather be anywhere else up to and including the fires of hell. No, <laughs> anywhere else except Arizona when it's, you know, 117 on a regular basis for crying out loud. So these are the things that I live with. These are the things that I lost that that passed me by. Um, and they are very painful. And oftentimes I will get triggered, not just by your stories, which I'm not saying you shouldn't tell your stories, but I will hear some of you talking about your youth and, you know, the passion of youth and, the you know, that. I will hear that. But more often than not, where it comes up is, Uh, It comes up in my mind, you know, when I hear other people, but when, when, when guys call me and they want, you know, they have program questions and they're from OA, then they have similar histories to me. But if they're AA crossovers or they're NA crossovers, now it's a different breed of cat. Now it's a totally different breed of cat. And they've got story after story after story after story. And it just, it seems endless. It seems like it's, you know, it, it, there's no end to it, and and sometimes I get jealous. I get sad because I don't have any of those stories. I don't have any of those memories. You know, I don't have those memories of, of those things that I so desperately wish I did. Um, but I have I have my life, and 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 you know my life is is a good life. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't. Uh, there's things about my life I think are very enviable. Uh, as it as it even though I was, I am a compulsive overeater. My life, I have good friends. I have, you know, I have my own, uh, my own adventures in life that I guess were interesting, but anyway, I don't have that stuff though. So these are the things that I suffered as a loss from this disease, personally, professionally, as an employee and as an employer, I had tremendous loss in my life because of this disease. Um, I, I would have had a very different life as we all would have had a very different life. I heard a lot of people along the way and there's guilt and shame. We were talking about this just a half hour ago or so. I wrote a lot of bad checks. I hurt a lot of people financially with my with my um, with my uh, life, you know, as it is. And I hurt a lot of people that way. And I had to go pay them back, and it was it was very very painful. I have a very painful history of hurting people, people that I love, people that I adore, and uh, I wish that that was different. Even though they have forgiven me, many of them have passed on. Uh, they have forgiven me, and I have you know, done the best I can to forgive myself, I still have those memories. And when I jar those memories, it can be quite painful. So I paid the price in every area that a person can pay the price. And in every way, you know, every day of my life, I read the line on page 63 i sometimes have it read to me sometimes i read it it says on page 63 at the end of the third step promises which is the first paragraph on 63 the last sentence is we were reborn and i think in any sense or every sense not any sense every sense of the word I have been reborn. I have been re re-rearranged. I have had God move into my life and I feel his presence. I feel his presence because I see his handiwork in my life. No matter where I look, I see the hand and heart of God, that I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not alone anymore. I'm not Uh, in that situation where I'm writing bad checks anymore. I'm not in that situation where I am substandard. And I always felt like the world was just passing me by, just passing me by. And there was nothing I could do about it. So I wanted to die desperately. I sought death a lot stronger than I ever wanted to live because from the time I was six or seven, I knew I couldn't live with the food. I couldn't live without the food. What is the point? And the world sent me a strong, massively, massively cruel, cruel signal. And the world sent me a signal that said, as a fat boy, you are 100% unacceptable in our world you do not fit into our world and you are not going to fit in you are not going to get a good job you are not going to get a girlfriend you are not going to play on the team you are never going to look good you are never going to feel good and we soundly reject you this is the, this is the signal that i got and if you're a, if you're me the signal that I got is as long as you're fat, you are unacceptable to any of us. And that harmed me. And it can. I have to continue to work toward that every single day of my life. And you know what? Here's the funny part. Here's the denial part, which is the next thing we're going to be talking about. But part of my denial, I'll talk to you now, when I was 500, Three, four, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred pounds. I looked at myself and I saw Steve McQueen. Now, if you don't know who Steve McQueen was, you can Google him later on. I I saw Steve McQueen. I saw Sean Connery. I saw you know the players on the Cubs or whatever it is that I saw. I saw something very different than the reality. Most of the time now that I look at myself in the mirror, I see a 400 pound man that needs to lose a lot of weight and I have to get centered. One of the things I have to talk about sometimes with a sponsor, sometimes with my significant other, sometimes with friends, my friends really don't understand. So I can't really talk about it with them. I'm okay the way I am and that I'm acceptable because that's a brand new concept for me. I've only been in this body for, I would say the last 20 years, 15, 20 years. So out of a 69 year life, I've only been in the acceptable category for about one third of that, a little less than one third of that time. And my formative years were spent knowing that I was the fattest kid around. So the next thing after loss is denial. So he talks about in this chapter um, that the companies, they were just in denial that they had alcoholism or denial as to the serious nature of alcoholism. And so that didn't work either. So when we are reading in this chapter, And some of you are going to hear the special edition tomorrow on Vision. And she's going to be talking about this chapter too. And we had a little bit of a text back and forth this morning. Um, But the bottom line is the denial of the industry's viewpoint on alcoholism is one thing but when we look at it and we personalize it then we look at our own denial what was going on in my life when i was nine and i was on diet pills 10 and i was on diet pills nine-year-old little boys are not supposed to be taking diet pills 10-year-old little boys are not supposed to be taking heavy amphetamines to curb their appetite I remember well that the bottle of these pills said on the bottom to curb appetite. That's what it said. It gave the name of the drug. It said Harlan Grabowski and said, you know, one pill three times a day or one pill four times a day, depending upon when it was. And it said to curb appetite. And that was the big thing that we need to curb your appetite. And that was the big buzzword was curb. And then when Marilyn Monroe died, a lot of the information on these diet pills started coming out and they weren't quite the panacea, the utopia that they were presented as. When Marilyn Monroe died, it was unfortunate that she died, but her death saved a lot of lives because these doctors were handing out these amphetamines like they were Skittles and you know if you came in with a weight problem you left with a diet and a prescription for these pills they you know they were handing them out like it was nothing like it was aspirin like it was like it was tylenol but marilyn monroe's death really kind of woke everybody up a little bit okay now the bottom line is the denial of our own lives. Now, the last thing is ignorance. So it's lost denial and ignorance. And we're gonna see that all through the chapter. And I like to review before we go, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm figuring you better step it up here. We won't have much to do. So the ignorance, now what do I, I, now I wanna make a distinction that I've made before. Ignorance and stupidity are two completely different things. I am ignorant of how to speak Japanese. Except for some brand names and except for maybe the name of a liquor, I haven't got any more knowledge of how to speak Japanese than I do how to speak uh, Neptunian from the people on Neptune. I just don't know. I am ignorant of Japanese. I am ignorant of Neptunian and how to speak it. I am not stupid. Stupid and ignorant are two completely different things. And when I introduced this concept of ignorance, I know a lot of people give me, you know, text messages blowing up my phone and phone calls and emails. I am not saying we're stupid. But when we don't know what the compulsive, what the compulsive eating disease is, and we don't know about the recovery, how can we function in the direction of a recovery that we don't even know is there? So the three things that this chapter brings out beautifully in, in it's doing it from the posture of industry. But let's take a look at it personally because most of us will never own or work in a massive company like that. So the, 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 the whole concept of this is really not applicable. Most of us do not work in those environments and most of us do not function in those massive environments. We just don't. If there are exceptions to the rule here on this big book study or listening on the podcast, Podcast, then God bless you. I am personalizing everything that he's talking about in this chapter, not for the sake of industry, but for the sake of the sufferer, the sake of the person that relates to the things that I just spoke of in my own life, in my own situation. Loss, denial, and ignorance. I'm not talking about stupidity. I'm not talking about a cognitive Deficit here. I'm not talking about anything cognition related. I'm talking about ignorance. I have no knowledge of. And you could give anybody a test on something. I bet you could give Albert Einstein a test on something like farming or or how to play the tuba or something, and he would probably get a zero on that test because he probably didn't know. I'm guessing. I don't know, but I'm probably. I'm going to guess he didn't know how to play the tuba or he didn't know how to play uh basketball or football or whatever that may be. So you could give anybody a test on something and they would fail miserably, just miserably. I know that's very true for me. You want to give me a test on certain things. I'd probably get an F for sure. And then other things I would get an A, a nice solid A. You want to give me a test on Uh, Chicago trivia, or you want to give me a test on certain periods of history or the big book, I'll probably get an A. You want to give me a test on how to play the uh, bassoon or how to do acrobatics, I'm probably going to get a zero. Uh, Okay, so we're on page 144 with no further ado, (laughs) no further ado, uh, but I needed to sort of lead us into it because I wasn't here last week. Page 144, the bottom of the page, on your employee's return, talk with him. Ask him if he thinks he has the answer. Now, everybody that would talk to me, I thought I knew the answer. And the answer that I knew was, I'm going to garner up my willpower. I'm going to muster up that willpower, and I'm going to stay on my diet. And for the first several years that I was in this program, I was 24 years old when I came in here, 44 years ago, I came in, I was 24 years old. I was two, 300 pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room. With one exception, there was a girl named Kathy who was relatively my age, a little older than me, but she was, I think she was in her late twenties, thirties, something like that, and uh and me. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and all I heard was what I had heard my whole life they're talking about losing weight I didn't hear the steps I didn't hear I didn't hear what they were saying all I kept thinking is if I lose weight everything will be okay why did I think that well I was 24 so for 24 years I was told lose weight and everything will be okay. So I wasn't hearing what they were talking about. When they were talking, my ears translated it to don't eat M&Ms and don't eat pizza and don't eat God knows what, and you'll lose weight. And if you lose weight, they'll get off my back. That's what I wanted. I wanted them off my back. I just wanted to die and I wanted people off my case. If he feels free to discuss his problems with you, I wasn't discussing my problems with anybody, but my problems were pretty, pretty apparent. My mom and dad had just died bang, bang within a year and a half of each other. I didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. I could not pay my bills. I stunk to high hell. I was filthy dirty. I didn't practice any hygiene, I hadn't brushed my teeth in a long, long time, I didn't have any semblance of a life I was 24 years old my friends were dating and having affairs I don't mean affairs on their wives I mean having relationships that's the word I'm really looking not affairs relationships and they're starting businesses and starting careers they were leaving me in the dust they love me I love them but they weren't going to stop their life because of me and that wouldn't have helped me anyway. They were kind, they were beautiful people, friends. I love them, but they were going on with their life. And I wasn't, I was in reverse. So that was my problem is if I lose weight, everything will be okay. And I knew I really couldn't because every time I tried, I failed. I was never successful at at losing weight. Not for very long. I'd lose 10, gain 40. I was always on the slingshot program, the bonus program. Lose 100, gain 150. All right, top of 145. He will not be upset by anything he wishes to say. He will probably be off to a fast start. In this connection, can you remain undisturbed if the man proceeds to tell you shocking things? He may, for example, reveal that he has padded his expense account or that he has planned to take your best customers away from you. In fact, he may say almost anything if he has accepted our solution, which, as you know, demands rigorous honesty. Can you charge this off as you would a bad account and start fresh with him? If he owes you money, you may wish to make terms. Now, I'm gonna personalize this because that's what I'm here for. And that's hopefully why you're here is to get this chapter more personal to you because most of you don't have expense accounts and most of you haven't been in large industry, but every one of you has lived your life. And when you get to that fourth step inventory, Do you have enough guts to be honest about the things you've done? Do you have enough guts to put down the resentments that you've been holding for a long time that have been killing you? Do you have enough guts? Do you have the fortitude to put down your fears? Do you have enough guts to list the sexual harms you've done other people? Did you cheat people? Did you lie to people? Did you screw people over? Did you use your sexual powers for something other than what they were intended for? You don't have to blast it on a billboard at the corner of State and Madison in Chicago, but you do have to tell it to another person because God already knows, but you do have to tell it to another sponsor, another person. Do you have the guts to be honest with your fourth step? Because it's only through that honesty that you're going to be set free. Because as I told you many times, the four impediments will hold you in check from a recovery. What are the four impediments to God? A resentment that you will not let go of. Are you holding on to a resentment against somebody? Are you absolutely sure that that witch did you wrong or that jerk did you wrong? Are you not willing to let it go? A secret that you will not tell. That's step five. Are you absolutely so self-centered and ego-driven that you will not tell your sponsor the things that will set you free? (sighs) Are you so self-involved and ego driven, that you're more worried about what people think of you than getting free and getting recovered? Are you so wrapped up in getting what you want that you're into image management and not honesty? Are you so worried of what people are going to think of you that you're going to let that dictate your life? Because I'll let you in on a secret. You know what we're thinking of you most of the time? Nothing nothing. We're thinking about us. We're not thinking about you. We're not thinking about you. We're just not thinking about you. Are you so ego-driven that you will not do the step as it's written? Now, let's take a look at the sexual part too. You got to do that. Okay, now let's continue to the next paragraph. We're on page 145. So I'm hoping that I'm personalizing what you're reading, not for a big business or a big industry or a big uh, employee. I'm talking about our lives and how these basic concepts apply to us, because if we can't apply it to us, then this chapter is worthless. This chapter means nothing then, because as I stated, most of us will never work in an industry like that. And most of us will never have hundreds and hundreds of employees. It just isn't isn't the reality for most of us. Middle of 145, if he speaks of his home situation, You can undoubtedly make helpful suggestions. Can he talk frankly with you so long as he does not bear business tales or criticize his associates? In other words, you can tell me anything you want. Just don't tell me a bunch of crap about another person. Don't do that. With this kind of employee, such an attitude will command undying loyalty. The greatest enemies of us alcoholics are resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. So let's continue with those four impediments and apply them to this. I told you that a resentment you will not let go of is is impediment number one. I told you a secret you will not tell is an impediment number two. That's steps four and five. Now, the other impediments are a harmful thrill that you will not stop. Those are steps six and seven. And when he talks about resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear, he's talking about all those things. And the fourth impediment is a restitution that you will not make. Are you so wrapped up in your ego that you will not face a person that you harmed and make restitution to them? Are you so ego-driven and in your madness, have you convinced yourself that this person is a terrible person, unworthy of your amends? It's not about the other person. It's about us. It's not about the other person. It's about us. Let's continue. Wherever men are gathered together in business, there will be rivalries And arising out of these a certain amount of office politics. Sometimes we alcoholics have an idea that people are trying to pull us down. We become victims in our mind. We become victims that this one is trying to get my job. And this one's trying to get my wife. And this one's trying to do this. And this one's trying to do that. And this guy's screwing me over. I suffered from that. Because I didn't realize, oh, wait a minute, God's in charge. God's in charge. You take away my job, I'll get a better one. I'm not married to my wife anymore. Now, I'm not saying that that was pleasant at the time. But I'm really, really, really glad that I'm with the person that I'm with now. And that couldn't have happened if I was still married. I'm not glad I got divorced. I'm not glad my family was broken up, but I'm really, really glad to be where I'm at today romantically. I'm a lucky man. I'm a lucky man. I really am. Especially when I, the more I think about this person, I'm really lucky. Often this is not so, not the, often this is not so at all, but sometimes our drinking will be used politically. That means within the company. You know, Bill Dotson, alcoholic number three, he ran in a political, uh, he ran in an election just after he got out of the hospital there in Akron in 1935, and his opponent used his alcoholism against him, and he lost the election. In industry, people do that. In, in schools, boards of education, factories, offices, insurance agencies, uh, accounting firms, these things are political organisms. You're always vying for the next promotion. You're vying for the next assignment. And these things can be quite dastardly, quite dirty. And these things do come up. But nobody's pulling me down. Everything that was taken away from me was taken away from me for a reason, and God gave me something better. I just told you romantically, definitely an upgrade, definitely a wonderful upgrade. Um, You know, whatever. God takes things and makes them better. When we believe enough and we work those steps, it is amazing the miracles that we will experience. Okay, I'm at the bottom of 145. One instance comes to mind which a malicious individual was always making friendly little jokes about an alcoholic's drinking exploits. In this way, he was slyly carrying tails. In another case, an alcoholic was sent to a hospital for treatment. Only a few knew of it at first, but within a short time, it was billboarded throughout the entire company Naturally, this sort of thing decreased the man's chance of recovery. The employer can many times protect the victim from this kind of talk. The employer cannot play favorites, but he can always defend the man from needless provocation and unfair criticism. What is the real lure of gossip? What is the real lure of that? The lure of it is, It brings us together so that we're friends. It's born out of tremendous insecurity. A person who is spiritually and emotionally secure does not carry tales like that. The reason we like to do that is because it gives us a false bonding with another person. And we don't realize often that the people who are most appreciative of gossip also gossip about us. But we convince ourselves that we're too special and that since we both hate this person or that person, or we both criticize that person or this person, that no one would criticize us. But an emotionally secure, spiritually healthy person does not sit around day and night and gossip. They just don't do that. So we can personalize that and we can see that gossip, A, as behavior that is born of fear, born of dishonesty. And and it is the child of those defects of character. And it is definitely not helping us in our program of recovery. It's not helping us, it's hurting us. It makes us hate ourselves. And every time we do it, We have to be afraid of what the other person is hearing. And am I going to have to suffer the consequences? Things like that. And that's where the self-loathing can often come in. So if we avoid the behavior, we don't have to sit around and hate ourselves. This is a disease of self-loathing. And we want to work against that as best we can. It's not just a disease of weight and food and food plans and abstinence. Oh, were that it were so simple. If we were at Weight Watchers, it would be. If we were at Jenny Craig, it would be. But it is not Jenny Craig and it is not Weight Watchers. It's Overeaters Anonymous. So we're not treating the symptom of weight and food. We're treating the entire individual. And in in chapter two, more about alcoholism, it says the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So we're treating the mind. We're treating the self-loathing. I'm at the top of 146. As a class, alcoholics are energetic people. They work hard and they play hard. Your man should be on his mettle to make good, being somewhat weakened and faced with physical and mental readjustment, readjusting, readjustment, sorry, to a life which knows no alcohol, he may overdo. You may have to curb his desire to work 16 hours a day i was never a workaholic and I was never a big schwer arbiter schwer arbiter in Yiddish means hard worker i was I, I always hated being on the phone i hated the rejection of it i hated the drudgery of it saying the same thing to the same person people all day long i have never been accused of workaholism and i have never worked 16 hours in my entire life so that set that part of it it does not really apply to me Me, but I do have friends that are very, very energetic when it comes to their work. And I have particular friends who are highly successful people. And if they have to work 16, 20 hours a day, uh, they'll do it. They'll do whatever it takes. I've never been that person. Just, I've never been that person. Sorry about that. You may need to encourage him to play once in a while. That part I do need encouragement to. To do, I have a tendency not to be able to play and go out and have a good time. I'm inhibited in a lot of ways. I get scared. Uh, I have a little bit of a social anxiety. Children made fun of me. Adults made fun of me. I do have some residual social anxiety that I do have to work through. So at first, like going to the OA birthday, which I recommend you do, it was really scary for me. It was frightening for me. What are people going to think of me? Me. What are, How are they going to respond to me? Oh, I just found it to be so wonderful. But the bottom line is these kind of settings can be uh, scary for me. So if you're thinking of coming to the birthday, just come. We understand that and we will welcome you with open arms. Please come to the birthday. Go to oabirthday.com, oabirthday.com and get your registration. He may wish to do a lot for other alcoholics. That part I am, I do. And something of the sort may come up during business hours. I have always been very given to helping others in this program, but look at what I've gotten in return as a result. I have gotten the world. I have gotten the world. A reasonable amount of latitude will be helpful. This work is necessary to maintain his sobriety. I have to work with other people. I have to do big book when I can. I can't really travel that much anymore. I just can't. But the every nook and cranny of this country kept me out of the food. I've been in every nook and cranny of this country. There's you know I've been in, what, 38 states? And I've been here. I've been there. I mean, you name it. I've probably been there. After your man has gone along without drinking for a few months, you may be able to make use of his services with other employees who are giving you the alcoholic runaround, provided, of course, they are willing to have a third party in the picture. An alcoholic who has recovered but holds a relatively unimportant job can talk to a man with a better position being on radically different basis of life, he will never take advantage of the situation. Now in industry today because of HIPAA and because the laws are so different today, that's probably not going to come up. If it does come up for you, great. It has never come up for me in my life. I've always worked at family, little tiny businesses, 30, 40 employees at the most, which in our industry is big, you know, very big, but uh, most of you will not work at giant industry. So most of you will never be called in by the boss to talk to so-and-so about their compulsive overeating. But what you can do is personalize it to OA, that you can give of yourself to the person who either is a newcomer or, you know, there are people who are not newcomers that are dying of their untreated addiction. There are people today that are remarkably larger than they were 5, 10, 20 years ago. There are people here in these rooms that are sitting here in untreated compulsive overeating. They go to meetings, they're coming here, but they're not bringing the program home to them. They're not working the steps as fervently as you are, and many of them identify as uh, uh, not just compulsive overeaters, but chronic relapsers. What a hunk of crap that is. You don't want to be a chronic relapser. Do something different do something different. That's I'm feeling sorry for myself, so I'm a chronic relapser. You know what? I've relapsed as many times as just about anybody. And when I did different, I got different results. You want different, you got to do different. You do different, you get different results. You don't have to be a chronic relapser. You don't have to identify as that. That's just a cry for self-pity. You want different, you got to do different. Get a sponsor, work the steps. You don't tell yourself you already have a sponsor. If you're a chronic relapser and you already have a sponsor that sponsor probably isn't doing much good for you you need to make changes in everything bottom of 146 your man may be trusted long experience with alcoholic excuses naturally arouses suspicion are you making excuses to yourself while you're unrecovered when his wife next calls saying he is sick you might jump to the conclusion he is drunk If he is and still trying to recover, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. He will appreciate knowing you are not bothering your head about him, that you are not suspicious, nor are you trying to run his life so he will be shielded from temptation to drink. If he is conscientiously following the program of recovery, he can go anywhere your business may call him. In other words, if you're in fit spiritual condition, you can go anywhere and do anything. You don't have to fear anything or anyone. Now, I'm just going to a couple of things before I turn it back over because we're almost out of time. I'm going to remind you that this is the question and answer period So we don't really want to share here. We just want to ask questions. Now, no math questions, no math, and no food questions. No math and no food. So let's limit it to that. Now, before